0: To the risk matters podcast i'm your host bennett whitehouse from the scott insurance risk performance group this episode of the risk matters podcast is part two of our cybersecurity series centered on cyber risk and its importance for your company please enjoy listening to our panel of experts on part two of this series you know, a lot of the discussion today has really been on internal
1: risk management um, going back to as you pick providers on the benefit administration side you know there's one thing to consider is um uh, you know a lot of larger customers we work with especially in the healthcare space have a security assessment so as you look at picking out a benefit administration provider that's going to manage that employee data and the benefits and information you're going to the carrier go ahead and have a work with your consultant and have a questionnaire built so before you even start your benefit selection go ahead and have them complete that documentation return it review it um, and also have a business associates agreement put in place with that person just around how they manage your data so so prior to joining
2: the FBI, I was a high school teacher. It's a long story how that all happened. but So I looked a lot at cyber and education combined. And what I'm going to say, I can't get anybody to believe, I'm going to say it anyway, because if I figure i say it enough times, someone's going to believe me ultimately. But the way that most companies do cyber education is you give one PowerPoint a year that you pay attention to and you have to take it, go through it and get the certificate that you are now cybersecurity certified. Yeah. Useless doesn't do anything because most people don't think about it after that. So you have to try to help create a cyber secure mindset and it's got on your term, terms, I'm stealing that. But to, so that people are thinking about cyber all the time as far because you can think of your employees as your first line of vulnerability or your first line of defense. So if you help them to understand what the threats are and and how those impact both them personally and your company as a corporation, because let's say that part of their, Their financial remuneration is incorporated in the stock price of your company. And you get hit with a ransom, with a ransomware or some kind of cyber attack, your stock's gonna go down. That impacts them negatively. But you can create training that you provide on a monthly basis. It doesn't have to be lengthy, it can be 10 minutes at a time that has a topic that's important to both you as a company and them as an individual. So maybe you talk about business email compromise for 10 minutes and how to protect your kids online for 10 minutes. That will get people engaged in at least understanding the threats that are out there from a cyber perspective and ideally raise their cybersecurity awareness so that when they get that email or they get that phone call that says, hey, I need you to wire transfer this money somewhere. They now, well, that sounds like this business email compromise I pay attention to. They at least maybe saw it recently as opposed to the one time a year they had the insider training with the, with the business email compromise, the ransomware, don't click on the links, have a good password the fall, stuff that they forgot long ago. That's my two cents on
0: education. Excellent point. And and one thing I talk to companies about quite a bit is that personal defenses piece and how what they learn at work about cybersecurity and best practices there can affect their personal life. Um, Making it obvious what's in it for them can get them more engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of parallels to the safety space. I know there's at least one construction company in the room, if not two or three. we talk about safety culture all the time. And, and how do you keep your folks safe on a job site? Well, it's a continuous reminder. It's a culture built around safety. It's calling out hazards. It's doing job safety assessments. Um, it's a regular check back into safety. It's not just at onboarding or your annual training. This is something that's kind of built into day-to-day life and operations. And, and typically we start to say, like, let's stop talking about safety. Let's start talking about work. Because in reality, that's where the risk is. And how we do work, how whether it's in our digital lives or out on a job site, uh, the same principles of, of keeping those best practices in front of folks in your organization can keep that fresh and, and really build that awareness that your employees now become your, your first line of defense instead of first line of vulnerability. So really great point there. Uh, I want to move on to... Uh, the ins and outs in IT a little bit, um, nothing in detail. But you know, I like to tell folks a lot of what I do in our space in cyber liability insurance and helping folks and organizations understand their risk is I speak IT, I speak insurance, and I speak English. Um, so you know, Corey, I know you you do a lot of this. How can management and leadership? Uh, best partner up given that knowledge and language divide. How how does the CFO or the president in the room partner up with folks like you and their IT team to to build a comprehensive program?
3: Sure. Uh, I like what you said. Uh, you gotta find that nerd that does that speak English and talking analogies. Uh, you know, uh, I can I can I could take you to a car lot, right, and sell you a truck. Like, yeah, this truck will get you from point A to point B, but hey, this one's got heated seats. Mm-hmm. It's got power windows. And the CD player, people still use those. So You have to be able to marry those gaps in communication. Um, those people are hard to find. I have a lot of nerd friends, and they're not really good at it, um, about being able to explain to a CEO or a business owner, you need this. And this is why, and uh, making that justification, um, you know, because it's not it's not necessarily a CEO's priority. I don't it doesn't care about servers or Azure. What the hell is Azure, right? What does that mean? It sounds fancy, um, but understanding like, hey, this can help you with this, this, or this, and it'll make your life easy. Uh, you have to be able to uh, communicate that effectively, uh, and and you're my little PowerPoint, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's. That's the kind of approach that I take when um, <coughs> I'm, I'm consulting or, or helping out with this.
4: If you want to get your CFO or CEO's attention, let me just run through some of the things that can happen. First of all, you can have, um, here's just some of the attack vectors. Uh, you can have Federal Trade Commission or State Attorney General investigations. You can have if you have a healthcare breach, you've got the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights is gonna come after you. Um, if you, you can have an SEC investigation, shareholder uh, cases uh, can be brought either as derivative basis or as a securities fraud case, uh, if you fail to disclose what happened to your company. Uh, you can have suits by and against your business partners or your vendors, um, class actions by customers Patients, uh, tort claims, statutory claims, contract claims. California is ripe with this. The, the, the same people who attacked the National Boy Scout Organization in the bankruptcy, and, and there were good reasons for that, and, and don't get me wrong, they're now moving on to data breach litigation and, and the IT attacks in California. So the, the client action lawyers are moving on to what they think is the next big pot of money. Um, in the Equifax data breach, the numbers were mind-boggling. The settlement was 1.4 B with you know, billion with the B. And the lawyers asked for $80 million in attorney's fees. And I think they got it. Uh, and, and and all and all the victims get is like free credit monitoring for two years, you know, which unfortunately some friends might say but the credit monitoring really is not what it's cracked up to be, but I won't I won't get into the technical don't monitor until it happens. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, the press coverage that you get. you want to be treated like Target that lost its CEO and its CIO? Or you want to get the kid's glove treatment that the Home Depot got? Um, my credit card was stolen through a Home Depot purchase. And, you know, I, I apparently bought an Apple computer for $5,000 in Boston that week. I had no idea. Um, and then every state and territory has got its own data breach law. And some of them have accelerated time deadlines to meet. And that's one reason why getting the FBI involved early is helpful because often having a law enforcement involved puts a puts a hold on the timing of when you have to make reports. Not in every case, but in some cases. And, and that by itself is worth millions.
3: A quick horror story uh, in regards to getting a CEO's attention. Um, if who familiar with a company called MERSC uh, if you're not, it's oh, a shit. <laughs> uh, one of my previous employers, I worked there for five years, in infrastructure architect, uh, was a terminal operations company here at Nashville. Ironically, they own 29 ports around the country in Canada. And when MERS got compromised with the Ukrainian equivalents of TurboTax, Russia attacked Ukraine, cyber attack, and one single laptop at MERS. Uh, Was attacked and spread wildfire and brought that company down for three weeks, 300 some million dollars in damage. Every all hands on decks, they're flying everybody to England, cots, pizzas, fix it. And that entire network had to get rebuilt for three weeks. Um, That caught the attention, that headline uh, caught the attention of our CEO. All of a sudden, hey, Corey, security now. (laughs) Security stopped becoming a bolt on and it became the forefront. Um, and that 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 I got my funding for what I needed to, to implement. So uh, I always say to CEOs, "Hey, let's not become a headline, please. Let's <laughs> that's, that's not fun. Let's be good headlines, not
2: that." Well, there's there's a meme you can find that shows cybersecurity budget before a data breach It's the guy looking over a bunch of pennies, and then it's cybersecurity budget after a data breach is the guy with hundred dollar bills. <laughs> yeah. So you can either fund it at the front end, or you can deal with it at the back end. Again, three point six two million for a data breach. Tell you push that out over 10 years of the annual loss expectancy, 362000 is still a lot of money to lose per year, where you maybe only have to invest 100000 in whatever your protection is, or even less if it's, if you don't need to do that much. And the other issue is a lot of victims get re-victimized because they didn't fix the problem that created them to be a victim to start with.
0: Good point. I uh, worked with a distribution client that was attacked three separate times with ransomware over the course of about a year and a half. Um, so... The I, Rob, and I think uh, darren, you you know this pretty intimately, but bad actor groups talk. They know who's vulnerable. Oh, yeah. So even if it's not the same group, it's one of their buddies that comes after you next. So um great point. And you know rob, I, you you brought up a a really good consideration there and something i I, I, I didn't even consider, but um, law has its own language, too. That's difficult to understand and a whole sort of different ecosystem between DHHS, SEC, all those different financial and government organizations that can come after you. Um, quick story, one of our clients um, actually became uh, wrapped up in a class action lawsuit as well. And it was a group and a, a, you know, a pretty uh, active lawyer going about and um, going after any organization whose website wasn't fully ADA compliant. So screen readers for blind people, um all that kind of stuff they they i mean it was a hundred thousand dollar loss because they were missing a couple of features on their website for accessibility um so there's there are legal risks out there that most of us wouldn't consider when building cyber infrastructure or, or it infrastructure or people defenses that have to be taken into consideration as well so um that and due diligence in acquisitions um, acquisitions are a great way to grow your company or build Um, build capabilities or acquire capabilities. But just remember, anytime you make an acquisition with your organization, you inherit that organization's risk as well, including their cyber risk and all of their data. Um, So, you know, they go from being a partner or a competitor to now a potential weakness on your own network. Um, One topic that I've always found interesting in the security space, and Corey, you touched on this a little bit, but you know, sometimes security can be counter to productivity in that the more, <laughs> the more hoops you have to jump through in order to maintain security, the less quickly you can work, the you know, less nimble you can be. Uh, and I'll start with you, but I want to open up to the panel. How do we make security efficient for an organization? Uh,
3: security loves simplicity. Um, so try to uh, implement automation anywhere you can. Fortunately, there's tons of software vendors out there that have automation uh, that's just native in their, their software solution. Uh, so, if, if it's a software solution you're looking at, make, make sure that automation is your friend. You, you're going to spend time and resources hiring someone to manage 10, 20, 30 different pieces of software. Um, that, that costs money. It costs money to put buttons and seats. Uh, it, so, automation is number one. Um, Number two, um, I'd say uh, getting back back to simplicity, uh, making sure you start with policy. Policy doesn't cost you much, but sitting down at the table, deciding how we're going to do our business and what are standard operating procedures around these things. So always start with policy and then your education program to your career.
0: Anything going on? Great. Last question on this front before we move on. Chris, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but um, what can an organization do to minimize their risk when they're selecting a technology partner? Yeah, I think some of the items that I
1: covered earlier is just really making sure as you go through um, the benefit administration evaluation process that you do have security questionnaires in like your RFI or RFP process that you may be going through from an evaluation perspective. Um, And then once you... Actually make sure as you select that vendor, make sure you have all the right appropriate documents signed. So earlier I mentioned like a business associates agreement making sure within their master services agreement you do have details around their insurance limits, how indemnification is handled. Um, so as you look at those, just make sure you're working with your consultant to make to have all those things in line um, so that way you are protecting yourself you know with selecting that partner.
3: That's something yep. Yeah. Um, In in addition to this, this is where the whole trust but verify thing uh, comes back to what I said earlier. Um, These vendors will send you their their reports saying, hey, uh, we're good here, here, and here. I have to trust that word, right? Uh, There's software you want to put in place to verify, like a posture assessment when they connect to your VPN. Do they have constant definitions or updated on their, their operating system? Or if you want to go uh, really in depth, you can can do like a a web front end where they only have access to a web portal to view said server during a certain amount of time with two factor authentication. You get really complicated on how you want your vendors to manage your environment if they're doing that.
4: It was also mentioned a second ago about corporate acquisitions. You obviously have to trust your your lawyers to know how to do an acquisition. they're not gonna catch everything every time. Some of the big stories in the uh, the headlines were when Marriott acquired Starwood. Uh, Starwood had had a massive data breach and Marriott acquired the liability. Uh, Again, when um, Verizon merged with Yahoo, um, the entire merger deal was thrown into jeopardy. And in both those cases, it took nearly two years for the breach and its aftermath to come to light. So that's how ugly it can get. You may think you're acquiring a fantastic little company, but at the same time, you have to really dig deep to find out if they've got a problem because depending on how the deal is structured, you may acquire that liability.
0: Perfect, thank you. Uh, so I wanna move into incident response. It's kind of our third major overarching topic here. And, and mainly because uh, I always encourage folks and organizations to shift their mindset from if to when we get attacked. Uh, The reality is every organization is getting attacked pretty much every day. Um, I'm sure Corey can tell you, if you look at this secure email gateway software, you probably get thousands of phishing emails a day. Each one of those really is technically an attack. Um, You probably never see it because software is really good and it rarely ever makes it to your inbox, but every organization is getting hit with some sort of nefarious activity on a daily basis. Um, and it just takes, as I think Darren mentioned, that one click on a link before it's a problem for you. Um, so really, once we realize you know, it's a matter of time, then we can start to plan for, okay, what are we gonna do when that happens? Um, written incident response plan is key. It's your guide to a fast, efficient, and effective response when really, frankly, seconds or minutes count, these things happen quickly and understanding who to call, um, how to contact them, who's gonna be on your internal incident response team, what their responsibilities are really critical to minimizing that downtime and and uh, and really the total damage. Um, so this should include technical and disaster recovery considerations, levels of escalation, communications plans, even goes as far as HR and, um, PR firms when it comes to something public, like a data breach. Um, There's a lot of considerations to be made with an incident response plan and customizing that to your particular organization. Um, So, you know, when a cyber attack occurs, we don't want to be building the plane while we fly it. (laughs) It's chaos. Um, And it's really an all hands on deck affair. So um, that written incident response plan, you know, not only do you write it, but you got to practice it uh, because then you find the flaws in that. Um, so, you don't build your playbook and then go straight into the game. You don't have a week of practice before the competition. It's the same thing with cyber incident response. Um, I'll open it up to the panel. I know I'm sure everyone here will have some opinions on this, but from your perspective, whoever wants to grab the mic fastest, <laughs> what are some critical elements to an incident response plan? What would you build into that? Anybody?
3: <laughs> go ahead, Corey. There
0: you go. Um...
3: A lot of times, but again, my focus is more on the the IT side of the operations, Uh, but the key element uh, to an instant response plan um, for me is first having the playbooks uh, built first, because it can take a long time to get a solid instant response plan. Um, It really depends on how complicated you want it to be, right, Um, if you get as detailed as it needs to be or what have you, but there are some best practices in play here. Um, having a playbook of this is what we need to do step-by-step step, uh, for ransomware or uh, a rogue employee whatever um, is really going to help calm the chaos so that that's what i usually do first is make sure that those are on the table and uh, it really helps mold that that instant response plan you
4: you can buy an instant response plan off the internet um, okay. menu. Hmm. you can buy one The reason it doesn't work is because there's no buy-in from anybody at the company. Nobody really cares. So you need to have a great plan that's designed for your company, probably brought to you by your outside uh, forensic consultant or a guy like Corey knows how to do those. Some law firms do them. I'm not sure that's really the lawyer's job because lawyers are not as technical as a guy like Corey. Let me just leave it at that. Um, And then you have to really rehearse it and and have buy-in. Make sure everybody shows up for the meeting. The CEO can't say I'm too busy or I'm in France. They have to get their, their tail in the chair and pay attention because it's all gonna flow up to her. And so she needs to be involved in the process. You need to make sure you've got your outside forensic consultant lined up for when you have a breach. You need to make sure you've got your outside lawyer on call for when you have a breach. Because as, as our moderator said, you you've either had a breach um, that you know about or you've had one that you don't know about, but everybody in the room has had one. We we all, we all know that we, we uh, have had that. So one one point about making sure you've got your, your team lined up and your incident response plan should identify who the person is and their phone number and their cell number and their address. And are they on call? And are they checking into the office regularly when they're on vacation? Because that's when the breach will happen. It's gonna happen on Thanksgiving. It's gonna happen on Christmas. It's gonna happen on Yom Kippur. You know, it's going to happen on a holiday. Um, And then the insurance guys will tell you that, okay, we've got a panel of forensic consultants on retainer. We have a panel of lawyers on retainer. If you have an incident occur and you call me and I'm not on their panel, then my expenses come out of your pocket, not out of your insurance policy. Because the insurance policy is probably going to cover your your legal fees. So when you're shopping for insurance, ask who their law firms are on the panel. Ask who their forensic experts are on the panel. Otherwise, you may go through a month of scramble, getting great service, but from somebody who's not going to be able to be reimbursed by the insurance company. Awesome. Hey, can I, I want to ask Darren uh, a question. So on multi-factor authentication, another I put out a report a few years ago that said that some forms of multi-factor are subject to attack. Yeah. So, you know, we've got we've got Duo. It's irritating, that we've got it. Um, but I read that some companies are going to triple or maybe quadruple. What what's enough? Yeah. Well, it's
2: a lot of that is social engineering of the multi-factor process, especially you're getting text message. So the bad guy gets in between you and your in your text message thing. Okay. So they may like they call you and say, Hey, you know, your Amazon account has been compromised. So you need to change your email address. But we know you have multi-factor, so good on that. So we're going to send you a link so that you can I can help you change your password. So the bad guy initiates the multi-factor text message that comes to you, and you then tell them on the phone, and then they change your password. So that's kind of the whole
4: thing. This is one time I want to ask for a show of hands: How many people have gotten that text? I have. Oh yeah, everybody. Okay, everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or you, you, UPS
2: shipment is late. So yes. Oh yeah, that's a new one.
0: Yeah, that's new one. Uh, Darren, when an attack happens. When and how should an organization engage with law enforcement? What triggers can they build into their incident response plan for doing so? You know, how does that work and, and how does their attorney fit into that process? Right. So let
2: me let me add a few truths that are probably sad to hear. But chances are, if you get hit with a ransomware, you get hit with intrusion. Chances of anybody getting arrested are, are limited. If you lose money, the chance of you getting your money back is limited. Now, in business email compromise, I will say this.
0: There is what's called the business email compromise kill chain, and if within 24 to 48 hours,
2: you contact your local FBI office or the Internet Crime Complaint Center and file a report on what happened. They have about an 87% chance of retrieving your money. After 48 hours, it kind of goes away because what happens is the money gets transferred and laundered through multiple bank accounts, but the bad guy doesn't know the money's there until he actually goes to check he doesn't he doesn't like have a constant reminder that hey your money's your transfer out. because it has to go get laundered and then it gets sent overseas so um if you get in that kill chain, you can kind of get your money back that way but for most cases you know that attribution is hard who did the attack so finding that is hard which is why you probably won't be able to get attribution yourself but if you call the fbi and bring them in kind of immediately now they're going to do forensics they're going to Try to get evidence off of your system. They will not share it with you. They will not remediate your system. That's one thing that the the Bureau doesn't do the remediation. They're there to collect evidence to ultimately ideally prosecute someone. And they've had success more recently with trying to get some of that because international partners now recognize the problem. So depending on the country they're in, you can get some some resolution maybe. Um, But as far as that, you should have, I, I actually, I did presentations long ago and I have a one page slide that says these are things the FBI will ask for if they come, like your, your, your network map and some other things. So anybody wants a copy of that, just email me or hit me on LinkedIn, I'll send you a copy of it. Just so you know what they'll ask for when they come, so you can at least have it prepared instead of trying to find it on the fly when you're dealing with your network being down. Um, so well, like Rob said, you know, call your lawyer first and then call the FBI, assuming your lawyer says that's a good idea. Uh, if he doesn't, then maybe educate him why that's probably not the way to go, not to call. But I mean, again, I'm not every I, and I would say that I'm just going to make a quick political point here that all the news the FBI is getting lately, that's all headquarter idiots. So ignore them. The, the guys in the field still want to do the right thing for the right reason. The right so the FBI good good point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Rob, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, entanglement between working with law enforcement, the legal side of managing uh, a cyber incident and a cyber claim from a preservation of evidence standpoint, attorney-client privilege, all of that, and and IT gets involved in that as well. On the forensic side, um, you know, things like uh, there, there's, you know legal considerations to take into account in terms of, say, ransomware and paying that ransom. And will that result in an OFAC violation? Um, So are are there any? Can I address? Can I address you? Yeah, let me address the OFAC. It
2: bugs me the crap out. I had to deal with OFAC when I was with the Bureau and they are bureaucracy like anybody else in Washington. So if you look at the OFAC list for the restricted Bitcoin addresses of all the bad guys, all right, so if I'm a bad guy in Russia and I look and say, like, my Bitcoin address is not on the OFAC list," that's not good. Well, let me create a new Bitcoin address because it's going to be a year or two before it actually gets on the OFAC list. So it's really the OFAC list for cyber stuff is the nice. It sounds great. The media plays it like it's a freaking genius idea, yeah. but it does not. So I, that's, yeah, good yeah, point. That bugs the uh,
0: but <laughs> there are a lot of you know considerations in terms of you know preservation of evidence, both you know if you want to. Um, you know, prove that data was not breached from your organization. So now you're not dealing with a data breach claim, something like that. You know, I'm sure you get involved in that communication, that that chain of evidence, as well as the IT folks. Uh, any comments you wanna make on that?
4: So assume somebody in your IT department thinks something bad has happened. They need not to sit on it, not to conduct a two or three week <laughs> investigation. They need to report it, they need it up. And whoever they reported up to needs to call the lawyer. The lawyer then erects the attorney client privilege and throws this giant cape over everybody and says, All of you are now working at my instruction and direction. So that starts the privilege. Um, the class action lawyers want to see what the uh, expert's report says and what happened and how bad it was and where all the data went. My job is to make sure that that report remains privileged until I want to use portions of it in a lawsuit. Um, I always, get, I always get the FBI involved because they've been good allies, good friends, uh, have, done a, have done a great job. Local company Genesco uh, had a had a big lawsuit against Visa. Uh, Genesco had a data breach a number of years ago. In fact, I was I was given a seminar like this at Nissan with FBI agent Scott Augenbaum, and Augenbaum walks out in the hallway and says, hey, do you represent Genesco? He's like, no, but I know the lawyer who does. He said, well, call them up because they just had a data breach reporting in Tennessee, and I want to talk to them. Uh, and they wouldn't talk to him. I, I think that's my memory of, of yeah. that. Uh, I just said, hey, I'll, I'll meet you over there. You know, I, I want I want to see you guys here. So the fight between Visa and, and Genesco was, the, the Genesco report become discoverable in the lawsuit. And Genesco had done a nice job with their class action defense team of protecting that report. Another big law firm, and a, a massive data breach years ago, um, just screwed up every which way. And they they are experts, they know better. But what was happening is that the, the experts report was being sent around to board members and it was being sent to other people in the organization and they were talking about it publicly and they just made a number of blunders. And so the the entire report became public. So it's very important to do everything you can to protect the privilege and hang on to it when you when you can. On the on the ransomware side, you know you're right. You have to figure out: Are we paying bad guys? So, and the way ransomware works is, the bad actor will um, pull out whatever data that they want, whatever they've monitored, and they use that as proof that they've been prowling around in your system. So they're going to grab some embarrassing things that I said about my managing partner, or you know what he said about me, or you know they're they're or they're, or who we're who we're uh, helping merge. You know, if we're merging several companies, they want that information. They use that as proof. Part of the, and then they announce how much they want. And it's, it's it used to be low, you know, when Bitcoins were cheap, I wish I'd bought some. I was, <laughs> I was helping clients buy Bitcoins, so didn't like doing it, but now they're like 37,000 bucks of Bitcoin. So, you know, it, it gets it gets way up there. The part of the uh, thing I'd love for for maybe Scott to, Scott Insurance to comment about is that the part of the discussion I don't understand about ransomware is the new industry of, um, negotiators on what the ransom is going to be. And it's I know that the insurance companies have negotiators with the Somali pirates and oil tanker captures. But the Bitcoin part, I, I haven't understood because in the Bitcoin excuse in the in the ransom or the data breach that I've seen, I don't have a way of, of contacting the bad actor. Although I think the industry has changed now the bad actors want to participate in the game. Yep. So maybe maybe you can comment about you know, that that new niche industry which uh, you know, they they look up who the bad actor is and say, well, you can trust these Ukrainians. <laughs> they're not going to double cross you and take, they're not going to take your money and double cross you. But there's they, and then they know of others who are double crossers. And so don't pay them and just suck it up and recreate your network.
0: Darren, I'll let you take that one first. It looked like you uh, had a comment well, on that. Well, I mean, a lot of them, it's
2: a business now. So on the page, it says you've been hit with a ransomware Call this number for customer service. And you can call them and say, okay, how do I deal with it? And then and you pay the ransom and it doesn't work. You can call the customer service number to help you get your stuff back online. problem, of course, gets into that if you don't do anything after the ransomware, they're going to come back and hit you again and say, well, sorry, but here we are again. So we had a school district got hit in Huntsville and they rebuilt their network, and after they rebuilt their network, they rebuilt it the same way they had built it before. We did a penetration test for them. Seven hundred sixty-five critical vulnerabilities still available, and the ten percent of the network we looked at, eleven hundred moderate vulnerabilities. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're not going to fix your system because they want to keep it broken unless you fix it. But yeah. I mean, it's a business; it doesn't pay them now. The, the FBI thing don't pay, don't pay the ransom. I mean, there's a lot of conversations online whether you should pay it or not. It's two schools of thought. Darren Mott's school of thought is if you got to pay them to get your data back, you got to do what you got to do to get your data back. It's not a great thing, but it is what it is. So FBI's policy is don't pay the ransom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to
3: throw in there Try to find a way to air gap your backups.
2: Yeah, well.
3: <laughs> it's not, mm-hmm. we have to go yeah, back Yeah, that's and a day. hard one. That is uh, hard. Greg, but- can you
0: uh, <laughs> kind of describe what you mean by air gapping?
3: Yeah, so uh, everybody's familiar. Uh, is a key term that you want to hear when you're talking to... Um, any type of backup vendors out there, like your COECs, your other uh, rubrics, what have you, but um, those are still online. That means that your systems are up and running and here's your, your systems here, here's your backups over here. Uh, and They run at a certain hour or they could be all, all day. Air gapping essentially means that at a given moment in time, you're taking backup from your backups and it's completely off the network. Mm-hmm. It's usually tape. Um, it's still the best way to do it and the tapes go to a secure facility um like iron Mountain. so air gapping is your friend <laughs> we're getting back
4: to it it's crazy; everything goes mm-hmm. so
0: what, <laughs> completely disconnected from the end so internet.
4: what what is adequate backup it used to be you know weekly or daily off-site I'd say. what is it what
3: does it matter uh it's still a 321 model uh you want uh Give me a second, Matt here. <laughs> yeah. uh, one one on-prem, uh, one at a secondary colo, uh, two different versions of it, and then obviously your air adequate depends on the system. I can I can I can uh, back up things for as long as you need, but if it's not cost justifiable, then it's not necessary. But if it's an important database, like man, all of our customers are right here and it's constantly changing, then yeah, that one's gonna take more precedence over something like this is my print server right it's got printers on it it's it really depends on priority and, yeah,
4: and then and then test your backup i had a <laughs> client years yeah. ago who thought they were backing up every they thought they were backing up every week and then when they had the incident um nothing worked no the, none of the backup was, was usable so i don't know yeah. what happened yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and uh air gapping is a great point uh we've had a couple of clients where all of their backups were either on their local network or in cloud backups and Um, Bad actors got access to IT administrator privileges and were able to go into those backups, corrupt them, and or replace them with just shell files, uh, change all the alerts so nobody got any security alerts that was any nefarious activity going on in their backups, and then when they got hit with ransomware, they had nothing to recover from. So, um, you know, building that gap between the internet and your most critical data is really important, protecting those crown jewels. And any other critical infrastructure that keeps your business running, you know, that's a great priority for your incident response plan is how do we make sure that uh, A, this can't go down, but if it does, we can get it back up and running as quickly as possible. And that goes into the technical aspect of it, as well as just organizational communication uh, and understanding among the employees. So um, for anyone here who may be a manufacturer, that also includes your operational technology, those machines that build your product Um, that often have internet connected sensors and whatnot can be compromised and can shut your production line down. So um, it goes really deep into the network and um, planning for the different contingencies, I think in a thorough manner is really important to responding to these incidents. And um, Rob, I'm going to address your question, you know, from the negotiator standpoint, that can very much depend on the organization and the insurance carrier um so if you are staring down the barrel of a ransomware event sometimes the insurance carrier has connections directly to negotiators sometimes the there are uh attorney firms that have that built into their um capability and um you know bitcoin conversion is kind of an industry in and of itself as well so um that's a little bit dependent on each organization each incident but um usually there's some connection there that can be done through um either the insurance connection or, or someone in that professional sphere that has experience with those types of incidents can connect you pretty quickly. Um, and I do want to address the insurance piece very quickly. In this incident response plan, insurance is a part of that. So Rob said, call your lawyer first. And Darren said, call the FBI next. I would also say, call your insurance broker. If it's us, at Scott, call us um, and call your insurance carrier. Report it, even if it's a notice-only claim where... Um, at least we have a claim reported and you can go through a triage system that they start to ask you you a bunch of questions and your IT a bunch of questions about what happened what have you done so far and they can start to um, really triage is this an incident is it not have you done what you need to do to contain it or not um, or do they need to deploy resources like a breach coach like forensics and investigation do they need to call, law enforcement, that kind of thing. Your insurance carrier is your friend in helping A, minimize the cost of the response and B, uh, deploying resources very quickly. They're experienced in doing so. Um, otherwise you run into a situation that was described earlier where maybe you call your own in-house or your own third-party attorney. Uh, you start paying them at you know $500 an hour or whatever it is only to find out that the insurance carrier uses their own panel at 300 or 350 an hour, and that's either out-of-pocket costs or you're negotiating um, negotiating rates with your current attorney to keep them on, so the insurance carrier will pay them. Um, it just adds complication to a process that's already a massive headache. Um, so you know, call the insurance carrier, call your broker. We'll help walk you through it. We've been through it before, um, and they can deploy those resources pretty quickly and and sort of. Get get an understanding of how this process is going to go and how they can integrate with all the various people on your team that are built into that incident response plan. Um, so we've been going for about an hour and 15 minutes. I think we got 15 minutes left, maybe a little bit more. Um, I want to open the floor up to questions or, or actually
4: um, I just want to cover, to cover a couple of things things. I want to tell a, a, a quick war story that complements the FBI. It's one of their few successes. um number one how do you find success if you have an incident you don't want any attorney generals looking at you no investigations no federal agencies coming after you no class actions and zero or as few state notifications that you can get away with and that's where your lawyer will come in of you know how many citizens are in this state and so randomly you may have to file a, a report in Montana and Maine or just whatever states have the most uh obnoxious data breach requirements. So here's the FBI story. Um, On a Friday evening at the office, about six, I get a call from one of my tax lawyers. And I used to answer the phone and say, well, hello, Mike, you old son and so-and-so. And then I learned pretty quickly that he often had a nun on the phone. So I stopped doing that. Um, And he says, listen, I got a client on the phone. He's lost six hundred fifty thousand dollars And it's Friday afternoon, what are we gonna do? I called my friendly neighborhood FBI agent uh, Friday night at his house. He worked with us all weekend long. It was amazing. Uh, he contacted the bank that where the money had been wire transferred out of. He found out that the wire transfer had been routed through a fake account in Wales and then was rerouted to Latvia. Well, all I know about Latvia is that you drive to Poland and turn left. <laughs> but uh, the FBI actually had a relationship with the Estonian Secret Service, which is a neighboring country, like you know, to be between Lithuania and Estonia. And so Scott arranged, Scott working with the bank, uh, the, the bank's IT guy, uh, Saturday afternoon said, I'm really tired of working with you, I'm done. And Scott said, that's fine. Eight o'clock Monday morning, I'm gonna be in your president's office and you're gonna be there explaining to him why you turned the FBI down or you're gonna Keep working with me. So Scott had the Estonian Secret Service waiting at the bank in Latvia, Monday morning, because the, the money was going to get wire transferred out to the stand countries in Asia, that's where it was going. And uh, fortunately, we got back every dollar. And that's the only time, uh, Scott says it's one of the only successes that he ever had in his career. Now add the, add this postscript, and I've said this publicly in the the nine that uh, my client was a missionary organization that had missionaries in countries where you're not supposed to have missionaries. And so in that one case, and I kind of tear up when I say this, the FBI acted as the hand of God in getting that political
0: organization their money back.
4: And I've always been very grateful to Scott and the FBI for the that off.
0: That concludes part two of our cybersecurity podcast. Our experts shared a lot of helpful information that I hope you find relevant to your organization and helpful in your efforts to manage your cyber risk. Thanks for tuning in to the Risk Matters Podcast.